welcome to the Burning Eye podcast. A week after the last episode, how on it am I? Woohoo! Um, it is um, a very rainy, cold day today. It feels like the start of some kind of suspenseful horror film, superhero film, or as Rick suggested, Game of Thrones. Um, and I'm very, very delighted to be joined on this wet and rainy day by the wonderful Rick Dove, who is here to talk about his new book, um, Tales from the Other Box. Hi, Rick. Hello. How's it going? Um, I am hiding from the rain, uh, which, as you said, is uh, even here in London is apocalyptic. Um, and yeah, sort of cars are making bow waves as they're driving down the street. So I'm just hiding from that at the moment and doing some editing. So it's been uh, productive, shall we say. It feels like a quiet, productive day. It's one of those days where you're like, well, I can't go out anyway, so I'm okay with staying inside. Exactly that. Yeah, staying inside, glued to the uh, laptop. So, um, Rick, your your book, Tales from the Other Box, came out a few months ago with, uh, now, in August. Mm-hmm. Um, how how's it, how's it been since the, since the book came out for you? Um, it's been been a wild ride actually it's been you know you you talk to yourself and you talk yourself up in your head about what it's going to be like to have your first collection out about you know I'm going to go on uh, go to this literary festival I'm going to be doing this show and I'm you know selling books and talking to people and all that sort of thing then this weird virus called COVID comes along and um, there are no live events um, and you start to worry a bit about how it's going to go and then all of a sudden um offers come through you do podcasts radio um interviews i did a magazine interview last week um and it's been fun um and unexpected and uh, yeah it's just it's been everything i could have hoped for and more um except we don't get to do any hugging or anything like that which i was quite looking forward to yeah yeah i'm always a big big one for the hugs love love doing a big hug um, yeah, do you know what? I think there's been like a real turning point in the last, like maybe since August, July time, maybe, where people or the creative world has really embraced the fact that we're, we're now digital and are really like coming, it's coming into its own. And like you say, there are, you're like, oh God, what's going to happen now? Because there's no physical gigs, but the offers do come in. And I've seen your name associated with a lot of different events, your podcasts. You did um, Out in South London last week with Sophia Blackwell you're doing the Bristol Literature Festival this week um and so it's it's really encouraging to see that it's it's despite everything it's it's still coming back and people are still uh, producing work and they're still producing opportunities for new writers um to promote their books and things like that so that's been great to see and I'm really glad that you've been getting getting offers in there it also it's I think it's a natural habitat for writers um we don't you know as much as I started doing performance and spoken word and all of that sort of thing the natural habitat for writers is any medium where people can absorb words so um, magazines and going back to magazines going back to radio going back to podcasts and all of that sort of thing it's you know it's quite kind of natural it's what we do you're right I think um, we've all had like some really quick hard lessons in how to work technology who knew (laughs) that we would all be amazing at Zoom by, by uh, the end of summer. <laughs> Had anyone even heard of Zoom in February? <laughs> that's what I mean, like the guy that's created this has got to be bloody laughing, hasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> like, I know it's been, it's been such, a, such a weird thing. And now as well to be like, it's so normalised. 
you know, using Zoom has become really normalized. Although I'm a bit terrified because I have to run some Zoom events soon and I'm a bit like, I'm like, okay, I know where I'm at with physical events, but I'm finding that I still get the same anxiety that I do with physical events in the lead up. I don't know if that's the same for you as well. Like I get those, those anxieties, those butterflies of, oh, I've forgotten something or, oh God, I need to do something. Yeah, I, I get quite a lot of performance. Yeah, I get performance anxiety. It's really weird, actually. I started in performance poetry to help with sort of generalised anxiety um, and to be more comfortable in social spaces and learn how to do public speaking and all of that sort of thing. It was part of a, a um, I'm going to get better at this because it's, it's good for me um, and good for my mental health. Uh, and then I still get massive performance anxiety before I do anything um or even sort of leave the house to walk down the street kind of thing um but it's weird that it's completely different the anxiety for getting on a stage the anxiety to um, doing something recorded or doing something on online i'm now absolutely terrified because i live in quite a busy part of um inner city south london i'm absolutely terrified that you're going to have the blues and twos in the background at any minute <laughs> so it's just, yeah the urban soundtrack <laughs> yeah I, I can't i've lived in the lived in northampton for a few years um a while back and i really struggled to sleep in northampton because there were no sirens oh wow um <laughs> you know it's a, it's a complete flip uh people say what would you mean it's like i need the white noise it's like when it's too quiet i can hear absolutely everything and it's really quite un unnerving yeah. um yeah, that's very telling there that you're you're saying that you can't sleep without sirens. Like powerful thing to think about for a minute there. Yeah. Just like that idea of yeah, needing needing the city. And so much of your book is about the city. Um, one of the reasons why I love this manuscript um, is this combination of urban mythology that you've created in your work. I like I like the way that you've used mythology um, to talk about. Um, the uncomfortableness of communicating and socializing in urban spaces, particularly to do with um, racism in particular. And I think it's really telling of the fact that obviously you were writing this manuscript, this book has been a long time coming, and a lot of people will see um, people of color, specifically black people, um, responding to racism now, and they will, a lot of the time it's, their context of it is George Floyd and stuff that's happened in, in the recent months. Mm -hmm. um, but for you, obviously, that's been in your writing for a long time. And I think uh, the more you like, go into the work and the more you read into the collection, you know, this is a lived experience that goes beyond the buzzwords of the last few months. Yeah, I think I like the idea of the griots, the griot, if you're French, um, the, the storyteller, troubadour, poet, person that you, that of African tradition that tells people stories which tell them which inform them about themselves and inform them about other people um that allow them to connect to sort of bigger truths or what have you um i like that idea so what i tried to do with the collection was essentially walk around the city and find as many stories as i could some of them are quite personal and autobiographical some of them are sort of second and third person some of them are hearsay um, but it is that thing of I was really, really keen to get the real story behind, I guess the real story behind 
all the like these inter everyday interactions so um homophobia racism sexism um, you know domestic violence homelessness the in the, uh, the individual everyday interactions the stories behind them and universal truths of who we are as people are in those stories yeah yeah as well like you obviously talk about in the blurb about how many um identity signifiers that you are, are put under in terms of being put in a box um and then this collection is just like getting all of those boxes and just flat packing the shit out of them basically <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. I mean um, I'm I'm a middle child. Um, Sam, I'm sandwiched between two wonderful sisters, um, and I've always kind of rejected the notion of being put in boxes. But I realise that in terms of demographics, I tick quite a few um, of the diversity boxes that people have. Um, I think one HR manager actually. Um, made a joke to someone starting um, that they had on our team that they had a disabled person, a queer person, a black person, um, and they were all the same person they pointed at me. Um, so <laughs> it was, um, so, you know, it's, it's that thing of, uh, the Venn diagram of who I am is quite interesting. I represent a number of different groups and I try to speak for all of them when I get the opportunity, so. Yeah, yeah, that, but also to humanize yourself which you do really well in, in, the, in the personal poems that you, you write in your collection. It's, I think we're so quick, especially in maybe the arts organisation world of like making sure that we're ticking the right boxes because we obviously want to give people the right platform. But it's so dehumanising when you're, you're trying to fill those gaps like that and rather than like thinking about the people and actually who they are and what their lives are like and how they live and that's the powerful thing about poetry i've read some amazing collections this year from queer disabled poets uh, that about their experiences of recovery about their experiences of of um suffering with long-term health problems and that's the essence of poetry is is what they're writing is the um mm -hmm. is is to connect with everybody that they they do and i think that you do that really well in your collection and i also think as well that the the no holes bars that you write with that's one of the things that really stood out to me when I read the initial manuscript was there was no uh, sugaring anything. It was like, this is how it is. Um, but wrapped in that kind of uh, mythological language that I really like. Yeah, I, I think I try to use the language, yeah, where I can, I try to use the language and the imagery to soften what I'm saying, but I don't necessarily want to like you say, I don't want to. I don't want to sugarcoat it or abstract it to the point where people miss what I'm saying. Um, it's very important for me to for people to get what is being said, especially when it comes down to ideas of social justice. Um, and as it happens, this book is quite anti-capitalist. You 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 don't want people to miss that. You don't want people to misunderstand that. So, yeah, <laughs> taking the gloves off is really important. Yeah, I really like the the style, the blend of how you write, which is to say that you have this um, poetic way of writing. You know, there's form, there's structure, there's um, critical thinking in how you're writing, but the, the language is accessible for everybody. Um, and that's a really good hybrid bit of writing that um, I look for when I, when I look for people to publish at Burning Eye, is that, that crossover of being fully accessible to an, to an average reader 
um, but also appreciated and enjoyed by people that really are into poetry as well. Yeah, I think I started, so I started writing poetry way, way back. I was a teenager. Um, and I think there's a couple of references to that in the manuscript. Um, and I stopped for years uh, because, you know, paying rent and that sort of thing. Um, you don't really have a lot of time to stare wistfully out of windows and at blank pieces of paper um, if you're trying to put a roof over your head in London. So it kind of gets, life gets in the way. So I stopped writing for ages. Um, and then I started up again. And when I started again, a friend of mine who I'd been at university with um, said something interesting about accessibility. And he said that, you know, he said the thing about poetry is that really good stuff people just ignore because it's not accessible enough yeah. um, and that really struck a chord with me and I said well you know if I'm going to write poetry I want it to go to as wide an audience as possible I want people to be able to pick up a, a poem or to listen to a poem on the radio and go I get what you're saying there um, and that became important as well so yeah I think that's really true <coughs> I, I also think this as well that some of the best poetry that I've read is is lost on some people <laughs> but oh this poem's great and then you know and it's that thing as well of like if you're not used to reading poetry then some of the best poems will pass you by because there's a there's something to be said about being well read in it as well you know there's there's a context that sometimes poetry needs you to have in order to access it and um yeah the the accessibility is a really important thing and plain language um getting getting the message across as well it's universal um and i did you work for, with an editor on your book i did after a fashion um i've got i'm very lucky in that i know um a quite few poets now from sort of performing for years um and bounced a few bounced i think every poem that's in there has had more than three pairs of eyes on it at some point um, and then actually cutting the, um, when I cut the, cause the manuscript was much bigger than it was. Um, and when I sort of edited it down and took poems out, I did that with the assistance of one particular poet, uh, called Barbara O'Connell, um, who very, very good page poet. Um, and she, and I sort of went backwards and forwards and she said, you know, this one doesn't really serve the the collection or misses the overall point to take that one out and and all of that sort of thing so there's quite a lot of backwards and forwards before um before i even submitted it to burning eye and then um a bit more after that so yeah nice was it how was it working with um an editor because i think um you know especially especially when there's first time writers involved um they often will be very precious about the work <laughs> be very much like no I have to put all of this stuff in there because this is this is all of me up until now and obviously this is this is your second collection um, yeah it's yeah it's first full collection the, the pamphlet I did before had very little editorial feedback at all right um and I regretted it almost as soon as it was published mm. and I would say that working with an editor is really important not I wouldn't worry about being precious, you know, it, it's your work and it's it's kind of like, of course it means a lot to you and you should fight for it and you should defend it and say, yeah, I want it all in and all of that. 
But the second pair of eyes is really important because you're, whether you're writing for the stage or whether you're writing for the page, you're writing for an audience and you need the audience feedback to know whether, whether what you're doing is landing. Yeah. Um, as, as good as the poems might be, you'll, you might lose the pacing. I mean, I, I think of a, a sort of a box set example. Um, I've been hooked on iZombie. Um, Box set on but Netflix. I love iZombie. <laughs> <laughs> I've been hooked on iZombie and I realised that part of the reason why I love that series so much, for those of people that don't know, iZombie is basically a police procedural in which um, an ME is actually a zombie and can help solve the crimes of the people that have been murdered by eating the brains of the murder victim and adopting their personality and memories. It is so good. <laughs> Ridiculous premise. But it works because of the pacing. And the pacing is really important. Um, and the fact that it's a police procedural is really important because every episode, there is a discrete story. So when you've got this long running story over five seasons, it doesn't feel um, the pacing on the long running story never really feels too long or too short or too slow or too fast because each individual episode is actually its own story in itself. Um, and I think that's really important. That's the same with a poetry collection in that you'll have the overarching collection, which you'll want to say something without throughout the whole collection, whether you're capturing a time, a place, um, island, as somebody did in a, a collection I, I uh, read recently, um, or, or, you know, your personal experience, but you want each individual discrete thing to stand up on its own and you want them all to thread together with the right pacing. And it's really important to get both right and you don't you won't be able to see that yourself you need a second pair of eyes to see that yeah uh, really well said yeah and i also loved that analogy <laughs> <laughs> i love i zombie i i um i've become um an absolute fan of all the performances in that thing um and i just can't wait to see what the actors do next <laughs> uh, yeah i honestly think it's um it was such a great series me and my best friend used to watch it and I, I just yeah it, you're right about the pacing as well and yeah because it works because there's like stuff like and also like when you're talking about the pacing of a poetry collection you're so right in the sense that if you're at the especially if you're like near the end of of writing the collection and you're getting ready to submit it you definitely want to send it to some other people because you can just agonize about the order otherwise, you know, then there are many ways that you could um, uh, sort the order out. Those are different mm -hmm. ways that you can do that, but um, you'll never really get a true satisfied opinion unless you ask somebody else um, and then they read it for you. And that can be really scary, but if you're not willing to send it to an editor, then you're not ready to send it to a publisher, I think. Yes, and you're certainly not ready to send it off to uh, people that you've long, long admired to get quotes for a cover, yeah. um, which is the most nerve-wracking thing I've ever done in my entire life. By yeah, the way. let's talk about your <laughs> star-studded quote list. So we've got, we've got Roger Robinson, um, who yeah. won the T.S. Eliot Award. Um, we've got Joelle Taylor, who is just a bloody superstar. Mm -hmm. Francois, like, just... Star if this was like a premiere event, the launch, it'd be like a red carpet. It'd be great. Um, yeah, how, I wouldn't yeah. be able to afford them all, though. <laughs> no, that's true. Yeah, I mean, 
well, if they're listening, come on, guys, it's for the community. <laughs> um, but like, uh, amazing quotes to get in. And I, I always stress this um, when we uh, publish new people or just publish anyone generally. I'm like, get good cover quotes. Um, they don't necessarily have to be things that you put on the cover. But I think it's very important to pick the people that are going to read to do quotes for your book that you have a connection or your writing has a connection to them in some way, and they're not just random people that you you think that you you would like something from. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I think so. Um, you know, I was I've been a long time admirer of um, Roger Robinson um, and Joelle. Uh, I was really lucky actually with the timing because I asked Roger before. Before he'd won the T.S. Eliot Prize. Oh, getting um, there early, I like that, yeah, nice. And because I'd asked him before, actually I'd asked him when he was launching a Portable Paradise, he was doing a gig in London, I asked him then. Um, and then obviously all the prizes, all the prizes, I mean all the prizes, it wasn't <laughs> all just T.S. Yeah, all yeah, the prizes. Um, and then when the book was nearly ready and I was looking for the cover quotes, I sort of really sheepishly approached him again and he was an absolute star and said yes of course he would uh, give me a quote for the cover and I just if it had been the other way around if he had won the prizes first I would never have had the guts to approach him wow Isn't that and interesting? so it was yeah the timing was quite fortunate <laughs> yeah that's that's really interesting as well how you say that you wouldn't approach him after the awards right I don't know I would have just gone for it <laughs> you know what I had a dream team list of like people outside of poetry that was going to sort of uh, track down um what you know and sort of go through their people um and see if I could get a quote for the book and I actually really do regret not pushing harder for Samuel L Jackson oh my god um, imagine <laughs> like but, I've had great fun this year because people have really gone all out for their quotes you know and we had a quote from Stephen Fry on yeah. James McDermott's book and I remember we got the quote and Clive was just like, he doesn't think that spoken word is proper poetry. <laughs> Does that mean that we're now proper poetry? Is that, is that what's happening? Now we've got, a, and it's just think it's, yeah, I think cross over those paths. We've got, um, we've got a quote. We just had a quote in from Emma Thompson um, <gasps> for, um, Bethany Rose's book, Neon, which we're publishing in November of this year. Bit of um, ahead information for all of you there. But yeah, Emma Thompson. I'm like, wow. I know, I, I don't know about you guys being excited about having these people on your books, but I'm bloody over the moon. <laughs> I'm like, this is amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fab. And I, I, uh, that thing about um, spoken word and Stephen Fry not really thinking that spoken word is proper poetry. Um, I think, but I mean, in the five years that I've been doing spoken words, spoken words has evolved. Um, it's one, I think it's one of the fastest evolving yeah. um, art forms that there is because it's really dangerous because people can end up all sounding the same if they're from the same city um, and using the same sort of intonations and inflections and all of that sort of thing because, you know, it works with the accent or what have you. Um, but, so that's, that's a dangerous side of it. But I think the good side of it is that people because we are constantly in the same space and listening to other people's work and reading other people's work and um watching it online and all of that sort of thing i think it evolves really really quickly um and someone will do something someone will use a framing device that you really really love and then you'll start playing around with it yourself 
um, and it's you know it's really contagious and exciting and cutting edge and I, I think in the five years from when I started to now it has changed immeasurably um, and continues to do so. Yeah I think you're definitely right and I think as we've even in the five years that I've been working for Burning Eye, the, the premise for spoken word has changed enormously um, in terms of, the, like you say, like it's fast evolving, it's fast adapting, like there's more crossover between the page and, and the stage now. Those lines are completely blurred mm -hmm. um, and it's great. You know, there's, um, you know, we've, we started out to, to prove that you've put performance poetry on the page and now we've, you know, with the with the wider community as well like that's that's been proven that's done you know we're now the norm which is really exciting which is really cool and i like the, the especially now that we're moving into using the digital tools that we have more often the, the things that are coming out through video and audio um and yeah multidisciplinary sort of platforms that poetry is now coming out on i think it's it's a really interesting time for spoken word no, absolutely. And I think um, every every platform that, you know, every media that comes across um, spoken words and poetry in general um, can adapt to it pretty quickly. Um, it's kind of like pornography that way um, in that, <laughs> you know. I'm loving you, your, your comparisons today. <laughs> so good. You, you know, <laughs> create a medium and poetry can use it. Um, you know, people graffiti on the wall. Uh, football terraces uh, if there is a media poetry can exploit it um, just the same as I was saying yeah. Um, but yeah it, it, you know, we're famous opportunists and I think um, yeah long may it continue yeah so let's talk a bit about the online events and stuff that you've been doing so you did um, a Instagram live launch for us um, how did you find that experience of obviously not having a physical launch, but having to do it digitally as well? How was that for you? Um, I think the digital events are really good. Um, I think the, the thing I struggle, I mean, I spend a lot of time on the telephone in my uh, day job when I'm actually doing it for working events. Mm. Um, and so I'm quite used to talking to disembodied voices. Um, for long periods of time and that's not really so much of a problem um audiences in front of you you get that wonderful feedback and interaction and connection with people uh which is slightly different when you're doing it online um because you don't get the disembodied voices because very often people aren't speaking back um you don't get applause you don't get um any of the clicks you don't get any of the sharp intakes of breath you don't get any laughter there's zero feedback um and also, uh, yeah, so it, it's surreal. Um, it's almost like working in a studio and just recording it for somebody. Um, but at the same time, you know, like I said, poets are shameless, you know, we're shameless opportunists. If you give us an opportunity to um, get the work out there, we will, we will use it. Um, and yeah, digital events are great. Uh, because there's lots of other things like you can do like not wear pants <laughs> yeah I really like that one yeah not wearing pants yeah no, I've I've um watched uh, obviously uh, there's a lot of you that have done the IG book launches and things like that and I think part of the reason why I like them so much is because with zoom events like we we're saying earlier there's so much anxiety that comes with running a zoom event <laughs> whereas sort of Instagram it's 
sort of a bit more casual you just sort of do a live video live stream for a little while you almost feel like a like a influencer don't you uh yeah um <laughs> I, I i yeah i like instagram live and there's wonderful little platforms that you can use to to put them on your laptop rather than on your phone so you oh, don't yeah have to get, yeah you, you get, did that yeah yeah so you don't have to get like a tired arm or a tripod or anything like that which is which is great mm. um but yeah it, it there is a, i don't really use instagram i'll confess i you i did it did for a little while like i say shameless opportunist um i did for a little while and took loads of photos and wrote little poems to go with the little with the photos and did that for ages um probably a couple of years actually and then realized I was just caning my data. Um, mm. Absolutely, out, out in the street, and I'm taking photos and uploading photos and, and all that sort of thing. I don't know how influencers afford to be influencers, to be honest. Um, the odd Instagram live launch when you've got Wi Fi at home, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I think um, everyone has their preferred platform. I have, well, I don't know. I mean, like, we're sort of like Facebook is dead, basically, I think yeah but, um, um i really like twitter because twitter makes me feel like i'm in a big staff room of like all the poets <laughs> you know and we're all like taking time out of, of our jobs to to sit there and have this digital cup of tea on a sofa in a staff room and and just uh, say things that we want to say <laughs> and yeah absolutely um, yeah and then ever so often uh like someone will start an argument and a debate will rumble on for several days. Oh yeah. God, yeah. But yes. Yeah. yeah. And then Jake comes in and he's like, here's the results of the next World Cup. <laughs> yeah. I just, let's have a World Cup of cartoon theme tunes, which is fantastic, by the way. The cartoon yeah. theme tunes one, which will be running as this goes live. It is um, a 320 cartoon theme tunes um, voted down to the best one ever. Um, that's going to be, be a lot of fun. I'm gonna I'm gonna have my heart broken several times, I think. On this. I've already had my heart broken. Um yeah. because the first group out of the blocks was rhubarb and custard versus earthworm gym versus thundercats versus SpongeBob SquarePants. Oh yeah. Talk about a group of death. Um yeah. <laughs> group of death. <laughs> it was really sad. Um yeah. and being a Gen Xer, um the fact that only one of Thundercats or Rhubarb and Custard is gonna go through is really sad. Yeah, well, I voted for Thundercats, um, but then like SpongeBob was winning, and I was like, no, uh, not SpongeBob, <laughs> so annoying. <laughs> oh. So, uh, listeners, we've digressed a little bit there, but if you're looking for some uh, cheap entertainment, free entertainment on Twitter, um, you can go follow Jake Wild Hall. He's the editor of um, a wonderful little poetry press called Bad Betty, um, and he's been running lots of various World Cups of on Twitter. Um, it's got him a lot of followers, I believe. <laughs> um, I'm not surprised. I mean, no. it's hugely controversial and a lot of fun. Like you say, it's, it's just the sort of wholesome um, distraction that the world needs right now. So, yeah. yeah, poets are very good at coming up with those kinds of things, aren't they? Look over here. <laughs> Absolutely. We're all in mild peril anyway. La, la, la. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so um, the books, the books out. It's here. We've um, you we've you've had your copies of the book we've been selling them on our web store thank you everyone that's been buying rick's amazing wonderful book i yeah it just feels like such a lifetime ago that we were all in a big room together 
talking about next year and the possibilities of what we were going to do. <laughs> mm. And now here we are on Zoom. Funny how life goes. But I feel, I feel like your, the journey from the, the submissions that we did with you and then, and then to the book has been really seamless. It's been really great to work with you. I really enjoy working with poets that, I mean, probably lots of editors would say this, but poets that know what they want and they know, they know how it's going to look. They know what their the style is, the order is going to be. They know what the overall thing is. They're like, bish, bash, bosh, here it is. Um, and that's, that's been a pleasure to work with you on that. You've been very um, decisive on a lot of things. Um, yeah, I think the, I was helped a lot. Like I said, but everything had many, many eyes going over it. I don't know whether that's more, I don't know whether that's an imposter syndrome thing or or whether it was a case of um of just being really 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 careful because obviously once it's in print you can't um make any changes um yeah that's true <laughs> uh yeah actually i'll let you into a secret there's one particular poem in the book and i'm not going to say which one um one particular poem in the book that has evolved since it was written about three years ago and it has continued to evolve since it was written about three years ago and I seriously debated not putting it in the book because I might want to perform it in a slightly different manner going forward um, and once it was fixed and in stone I wouldn't be able to get away with it um, so um, yeah there is that to factor in as well oh no 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 we're always like especially at Burning Eye we're like you have a live version and then you have your <laughs> album version so okay. you, can, you can you can change it up in any sort of direction. You have the freedom to do that. That's the freedom of performing, isn't it? Um, and sometimes I always like getting a copy of the book and, and seeing that the poem is slightly different to how it's been performed. Um, kind of makes it kind of makes it special. It's quite nice. So don't worry about that. You know, you've got a book now. That's it. You're part <laughs> of the Burning Eye family. You, yes, a great family it is as well. I know it's it's so nice. Clive and I were talking about how nice it was that we did the Burning Eye convention last year, and how so how many uh, this year we've noticed that so many of you are buying each other's books, really supporting each other, promoting each other's work, that kind of thing. And it's so nice to see. It's really nice. Well, you've you, I think you've got a really good knack of um, selecting collections from really good people. That genuine, you know, it's that thing of. Um, American expression burning eye is good people so yeah it's great yeah oh thanks oh that's validating to me because I have massive imposter syndrome and I'm often like what the fuck am I doing right. <laughs> I'm like I hope I'm doing the right thing um but yeah I really um I think as well because I haven't been editing that long and I've I've been uh, run managing all the submissions for a few years so it's um I feel like I'm finally coming into my own with it. And I think this year has been an exceptional list of people, yourself included. Um, and I really hope that physical gigs start up again so that we can all have a big party together. Yes, I'm, I, I, I think it may have to be the second weekend of everything opening up again, because um, the first weekend I may not see. <laughs> yeah, 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 okay. Uh, yeah, you know, everyone's I mean, social I, calendars are going to be ridiculous when this finishes, aren't they? Yeah, I, I actually said with all, with all the people I've promised to have a drink with when this is all over, um, I could start the rounds of drinks on my 45th birthday and still be drinking at 65. <laughs> Just, yeah, yeah, I'll, when this is all over, we'll go out for drinks. It's like, oh, just don't make promises, Rick. Don't make promises you can't keep. <laughs> 
<laughs> I will try. I will always try. Um, my liver might give up on me, but I will try. It's okay. Let's hoping that most people would just forget it. You know, it, it's sort of like asking how you are these days. Like no one really means it. <laughs> like, everyone knows we're all shit. Yeah. Anyway, that took a bit of a darker turn than I was expecting, Bridget. <laughs> it's the rain. The rain is making me gloomy. Um, uh, Rick, have you got any gigs coming up? Okay, so um, I am going to be doing a sh very, very short bit as part of uh, a queer film festival in London in November, uh, on the 11th of November, um, and also doing Hammer and Tongue Cambridge in November as well. Um, both will be able to be sort of found through the respective websites um, and online. Um, and I will be probably promoting it on my Twitter quite heavily in the next couple of weeks. Um, beyond that, I basically, like I said, because I love live events and all of that sort of thing, I'm trying to use the break from live events to do a lot of writing and editing and that sort of thing. So hopefully um, I can get a few things off to magazines and, and various other things like that over the next few weeks. But um, yeah, that's it. <laughs> cool. Well, that sounds really good. Um, we're um uh obviously this is going to be you're going to be listening to this listeners after we've already done the bristol lit fest um but we're obviously recording it before then so i'm just going to say preemptively that what a great show it was <laughs> it was fantastic <laughs> it was so about good. the tech issues yeah bloody hell damn it don't say that <laughs> i'm not gonna sleep now it's gonna be bad oh my god rick would you like to lead us out with um a poem from the book i usually ask um to uh, for you guys to find your hidden gem for me? Uh, I'm going to, because I'm going to do a little break here so we can cut that more seamlessly. Um, I'm going to do a piece from the book which is probably going to get the book banned from schools for anti-capitalist content. Um, so this is Bucket List. Capitalism is putting out a fire with a bucket, with a trickle of a hole at the base of it and having to carry said bucket from the lake edge to the seat of it, the fire that is. And what is your strategy in this? Is it in a steady stream of half buckets, anxiously and hurriedly backwards and forwards, forwards and backwards more than enough to make sure of enough? Or is it more conservatively in believing you have time to plug the hole before you go and committing early to that belief that efficiency and lack of waste, especially of your own energy, is the key? Capitalism is filling the bucket with poured possessions to a raging fire made of need. Capitalism is the bucket maker's greed, selling straw as kindling with black market weed. There's a hole in my bucket, dear Liza, dear Liza, you used to sing to me. That one bucket was enough for Maslow's hierarchy. You used to sing to me, there's a hole in my bucket, dear Liza. That all abundance is about anxiety, around security, about the fear of fire that our newsreels bleed. There's a hole in my bucket, you used to sing to me. My bucket, a hole. Capitalism is black market buckets. Reselling buckets to stockpile to price fix, reading bucket diplomas at bucket universities, studying an amendment in the very definition of freedom about buckets and straw and a straw man's deeds. Capitalism is a media obsessed with fires, even ones with deniers, even the ones we started abroad and still sell the straw to feed. 
capitalism is the very idea of buckets with buckets as seeds and bucket peer-reviewed year-on-year growth in perpetuity and bucket salesman arsonists suggesting the blood of refugees is just as good as water and better for the bucket's longevity it's only thicker when your family you see capitalism in this endless game of buckets bucketing down with rain and when into every life some rain must fall the bucket is the panacea the catch-all capitalism is our willing acceptance and yet total denial of all of this until we kick it the bucket that is I like to clap everyone because we don't get enough applause these days. Oh, thank you. So thank you so much for sharing that. That was great. I really like that poem. Um, I just really like the book generally. Um, so if you're listening and you haven't got a copy of Rick's book, <gasps> Shock Horror, you should definitely do that. You can get it direct from burningeye.co.uk or, and um, we definitely recommend this, you should go direct to Rick. Um, and get a signed copy um, so that Rick gets most of the profits from the sale. Rick, where can we buy your book from? Okay, now I did have a really nice short link made up on Bitly and I've completely forgotten it. So if you go across to Twitter, um, my handle on Twitter is multi-stable, multi as in many and then stable as in horse. Um, I will be promoting the book and uh, signed copies on that platform. Great. Okay. Um, we'll put a link to that in the description of this episode so that you don't miss out. Um, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you today. Really brighten up my afternoon. <laughs> yeah, same here. I, I, I think the rain has just stopped here as well, which is brilliant. So I'll be able to get out and get some fresh air. Great. Yeah. I hope there's a rainbow for you, my love. <laughs> uh, no, no chance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, okay. Well, it's been great to talk to you, Rick. Thank you so much for having a chat with us today. And thank you so much for having me on. It's been great.